Good morning, everyone, and welcome to a special edition of A Vision for You. My name is Leah M., Recovered Compulsive Overeater, and your moderator for this morning. Today is Sunday, May 7, 2023. The share ID numbers for Friday, May 5th, are the following. For the 7 a.m. Eastern meeting, 20,228. That's 20228. And for the 10 a.m. Eastern Big Book Study, 20,229. That's 20229. This morning, A Vision for You presents Fear, an Evil and Corroding Thread. In step one, we conceded powerlessness, the realization that we are doomed. And we're not doomed because of our allergy of the body, but because of the uh, mental obsession. What is underneath our destructive compulsive overeating? What are some of the obstacles blocking us from the power that we so desperately need. In the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, it says that we are driven by a hundred forms of fear, self-delusion, self-seeking, and self-pity. These things drive our compulsive overeating and behavior. When we let ourselves be subconsciously driven by fear, we end up suffering greatly. The essence of what the 12 steps do for us is remove the things that block us from the higher power deep down within us, the higher power that we so desperately need. Step four begins the process of unblocking aspects of self that had defeated us. The big book suggests self-reliance as the ultimate root of our fear, and it further suggests that God-reliance is the answer. Hence the necessity and the urgency for the application of the 12 steps leading us to a spiritual awakening and a new way of life. Joining us today to elaborate on this very topic of fear is Amy G., a recovered compulsive overeater from Maryland. Amy is a beloved member, a loyal servant of Overeaters Anonymous and a vision for you, and is dedicated to carrying the message of, with, of recovery. And it's with great appreciation and always a great pleasure to welcome Amy G. to the line. Good morning, Amy. Amy, star one to unmute. Amy, star one to unmute.
Thank you, everybody, for your patience while we work out this technical difficulty. Am I being heard? Let's start there. Yes, you are heard. Leah? Yes, you are. Thank okay, you. Yeah, I'm back, Leah. All right, Amy. <laughs> You're trying to provoke a little fear in me, are you? Okay. Oh, my. Fear in you? <laughs> oh, my goodness. All right. Thank you. Well, Thank welcome, you. and so it's with great appreciation and always a pleasure to welcome you. So good morning, Amy. Good morning. Just never know how life is going to start things out for you. Oh, my goodness. Thank you, Leah, so much. My name is Amy G. I am a recovered, gratefully recovered compulsive eater uh, from Maryland. And as I was saying, well, I thought I was unmuted, but it is an honor and a privilege to be able to be here. Um, Never in my wildest imagining would I have the life that I have today. By the grace of God, in these 12 steps, my life has been transformed. And I live today grateful and free from compulsive eating. And I'm so happy to be here just to share my humble experience, strength, and hope. Just to qualify a little bit, for those of you who don't know me, I, I came to um, OA in March in 82, 1982, and I didn't become recovered until 87. And when I mean recovered, it's the definition that OA has. I'm not making it up. It's recovering from compulsive eating and compulsive food behaviors while working towards or maintaining a healthy body weight. And I like to add, as others have said, while doing so happily, never did I ever think that food would not call to me 24-7. And gratefully, this program has shown me the way um, and given me the power through God. That's who my higher power is, um, to not have that happening every single day. And um, my top weight I was uh, probably somewhere around 170, and then I, full of the, they call the three Bs of the disease, denial, delusion, and defiance, I just stuck my head in the sand and I didn't get on the scale anymore, so I probably put on another 15 or 20, so pushing 200. Um, Okay, Leah, am I clearer now? Is that better volume? Okay, we'll go with that. Yes. Um, so, great. All right. Gotta love technology. Okay. So, and then my lowest weight, because I'm also was anorexic, uh, was 102. That's about 30 pounds from um, what you know my normal weight is. And trust me, I I definitely know that number. 102. Driving in the summer with the heat on, with a down jacket on, et cetera. But by far and away, the worst manifestation of my disease was the bulimia. I had a friend who said, hey, I've got a magic trick for you. Uh, Just stick your finger down your throat and you can eat whatever you want. And for me, I bought the myth that the world sells you that thin as well. So I felt I could eat whatever I wanted. I mean, that was the genie in the bottle, the wish to be able to do that and be thin and eat whatever I want. So I proceeded to become a full-fledged bulimic to the point where I could hardly keep anything down. And where my binges were, you know, three or four hours where it used to be, where I couldn't get another bite into my throat, into my mouth, I would pass out. What would happen then is I would purge. And what would be a couple-hour binge would then move on to be a 12-hour binge, a 24-hour binge, until the point where I was in my freshman year of college. I was failing out of school 
and I was binging and purging around the clock on the weekend, 72 to 48 hour types of binges. This is the devastation that this disease brings to us. I am a bottle in the bag, living underneath the bridge, people, compulsive overeater. This program has literally saved my life. So just a disclaimer on this on this title today and on this on the subject of fear. I am I'm no expert here. I'm just sharing my experience, strength and hope. I mean, there's just so many ways to address this idea of fear in relation to our recovery. The big book makes it very clear about what starts our fears, but this is my interpretation and I'm doing the best I can. I am not a therapist, right? I am just going to share my experience, strength and hope because I do know that the fears that I have had can destroy me over ever staying in recovery. They could have destroyed me from ever getting into recovery and certainly destroys any connection to the power that I need to live sane and sober and compulsive uh, free life, right? So the title about the evil and corroding thread comes from page 67 when we're talking about fear in the fourth step, and it says here, this short word somehow touches about every aspect of our lives. It was an evil and corroding thread. The fabric of our existence was shot through with it, and it set in motion trains of circumstances which brought us misfortune we felt we didn't deserve. But did we not ourselves set the ball rolling? Sometimes we think fear ought to be classed with stealing, it seems to cause more trouble. And I can certainly relate to that. And let me just say here, this whole idea of fear, sometimes it's not necessarily bad. For example, this kind of, the, the kind of fear that says, well, I'm not gonna cross a four lane highway in rush hour traffic for fear of being hit. Of course, we're not talking about those kinds of fears. What I'm talking about is the fears that motivate us to act and behave in ways that are destructive to us. And as Leah was talking, make it real easy to trigger the mental, uh, mental obsession so that the food come, comes calling. I will also tell you that the fear of dying, you know, fear is a great motivator, it, you know, for the good or for the bad, one way or the other. I will say that my actual fear of dying from compulsive overeating is what finally convinced me almost five years into this program to truly work this program in its totality by putting the food down, defining an abstinence plan, and working these steps like my hair is on fire so that I could access the power of God that will relieve me of the bondage of the compulsive eating. So for me, sometimes fear could be good, but for the most part, <laughs> uh, fear was not helping me out here, and which is why I'm here talking about this, right? Uh, page 62 also talks about this, about the drivers, the drivers. Leah also mentioned that in that openness, in, our, in the opening. Selfishness, self-centeredness, that we think is the root of our troubles, driven by a hundred forms of fear, self-delusion, self-seeking, and self-pity. We step on the toes of our fellows and they retaliate. So just to give you some stats, maybe it irritates people, but I love doing this kind of thing. So in the big book, the first 164 pages, fear is mentioned 32 times. In the 12 and 12, the AA 12 and 12, it's mentioned 34 times. So I think they're trying to get something across here. But what I thought was even more interesting when I looked at all of those pages and all of those mentionings of fear, how many times the word self is right along next to the word fear. Yep, me, myself, and I. 
And what was incredibly powerful about the inventory work and the continued 10-step work, it became clear that my self-centered fears was the driver and the evil corroding threat of my life. You know, I, I had and I still can, without staying spiritually fit, make fear-based decisions. I certainly did so before recovery. They were threaded all through my life. I didn't even, I don't know, I'm not even sure I was conscious of them. And, and let me just stop and say here, thank God for the inventory, because it brought me, led me to me, to understand the ism, the inside me of what was going on and what was blocking me from the power of God to relieve me of the insanity of compulsive overeating. We have a great saying in AA, I'm also in that father program, it's not alcoholism, it's alcoholism, right? So I need to be working on the inside me stuff every day. But we've heard before that, you know, the fears that we have are the springboard for most of all of our character defects. So what creates that fear is self. It's my self-reliance. It's my selfishness. It's my self-centeredness. It's my self-seeking. It's my self-pollution. It's my self-pity. You know, are we getting the picture here? It turns out the chief motivators, as I understand it, of my fears is, is self, right? They weren't kidding when they say selfishness, self-centeredness, you have to get rid of it or it kills us because self um, becomes quite the springboard for those fears. Um, Dr. Bob, in Dr. Bob's story on page 172, I think he states it really good, really well. So it says here in his story, my whole life seemed to be centered around doing what I wanted to do without regard for the rights wishes or privileges of anyone else, a state of mind which became more and more predominant as the years passed. And that was certainly my frame of mind. Power, property, wait, power, popularity, prestige, whatever I want, when I want it, as much as I can. I didn't know any other way. Uh, Bill, uh, Dr. Bob was also um, quoted, I wish I could find, I think it was in El, as Bill sees it, but I found the quote and then I couldn't find what page it was on. But anyway, frankly, without a spiritual compass, it is all about self. So let's talk a little bit about self, the self behind all of these fears. So when we go to the inventory on page 65, um, actually, let me just get there. We're talking about the resents the lap, the cause, and the affects my, that third column. And in that third column, if you're on page 65, it, it talks about sex relations. It talks about self-esteem. It talks about personal relationships. It talks about security. And then bracketed in these is fear. And basically what those fears are is when it comes down to our resentments and it, what it affects. The third column, in my humble opinion, really basically is about our instincts. Our instincts for security, for 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 society, for relations, for sex relations, all those things are instincts. And um, when I looked at the 12 and 12, it, they did a great job, Bill, did a great job, in my humble opinion, about clarifying about what's going on here. And I'm going to read a couple paragraphs, so bear with me, but because I think it describes very clearly here. It says, creation gives us instincts for a purpose. Without them, we wouldn't be complete human beings. If men and women didn't exact, exert themselves to be secure in their persons, made no effort to harvest food or construct shelter, there would be no survival. If they didn't reproduce, 
the earth wouldn't be populated. There'd be no social instinct. If men cared nothing for society or one another, there would be no society. So these desires for sex relations, for material and emotional security, and for companionship are perfectly and necessary and right and surely God-given. Yet these instincts are so, that are so necessary for our existence often far exceed their proper function. Powerfully, blindly, many sometimes subtly, they drive us, dominate us, and insist upon ruling our lives. Our desire for sex, for material and emotional security, and for important place in society often tyrannize us. When thus out of joint, man's natural desires can cause him great trouble, practically all trouble there is. No human being, however good, is exempt from these troubles. <clears throat> Nearly every serious emotional problem can be the cause of misdirected instinct. When this happens, our natural assets, the instincts, have turned into physical and mental liabilities. So, you know, some people will say these instincts are God-given, as I believe. Others say it's just basic biology. Others will say it's evolution. But simply put, these are innate and subconscious to all of us. And, I mean, it's not good or bad. They, they just are. So I'm a keep-it-simple kind of girl. So I'm just going to do a real quick bird's-eye view of what I think the three primary instincts are or what Bill repeats over and over again in this column, in that third column of what it affects. So security, it's the oldest there is. Survival, basic instincts to live, to thrive, the drive to thrive, right? But it also has evolved over time, and it's not just surviving, but it's also thriving and seeking health and, yes, comfort, pleasure. We aim not only to thrive, but to seek comfort and pleasure. Recognize that word comfort. Why do we eat? We are restless, irritable, and discontent until we can again sense the ease and comfort that comes by taking a drink or a bite. So that's security. Society, to feel a part of, to belong, to not be alone, connection, love, community. And then there's sex, another basic desire to, re to reproduce, right? Obviously, right? To continue the human race. But it's also evolved to produce, to compete and win, right? The top dog is the one that gets to reproduce. So it's to succeed, to lead, power, popularity, prestige. So basically what I'm saying here is that, you know, when these instincts are threatened, misdirected instincts that Bill was talking about here in the 12 and 12 and step four, I perceive a fear. I become, we become fearful whether or not I recognize it, right? And I'm going to react with whatever arsenal of character defects is in my control. And there are a lot of those, <laughs> for sure. So, um, again, the problem comes when I, self, right, my self-delusions, my selfishness, my self-centeredness, myself interpret these instincts. And when they're threatened and how I perceive I need to go about fulfilling them. I put myself in a world of hurt, not to mention stepping on the toes of my fellows, and quote, they retaliate. The definition of fear backs it up. Webster says, quote, a strong emotion caused by anticipation or awareness of danger. And I think the program, frankly, says it better, right? Fear, the acronym FEAR, false evidence appearing real. So who decides what is real? 
who decides what the fear is? Well, it's me. It's the self. It's me, myself, and I. So, okay. So, enough theory here. Let's do some examples, right, of my instincts that are creating those fears. All right? So, let's take security. One of the biggest struggles with my relapse, particularly in that first five years, there before I finally surrendered. They usually say the other three Ds of the D. The other three Ds of um, the disease is when you're dying, desperate, and doomed. And that's where I was in December of 87. Is my response to self-reliance. You know, I believed that my instruction manual for life, if you will, was self-reliance. I believed in order to survive, in order to thrive, in order to get my comfort, I had to rely on myself. And I think that's a lot of where my agnosticism was too. I didn't want to, I didn't want God to run the show. I wanted to run the show. And I think, frankly, the greatest delusion for me as an addict is the complete bondage to self and the delusion that I have the necessary power to force life to comply to my terms. And I don't. <laughs> I don't. And I didn't even know it. But that response to security meant that I needed, I mean, I just picked up the idea, there's no blame here, uh, that I could trust no one and I could only rely on myself to take care of me. Self-reliance in a big way. Call it my upbringing, and that's not blaming my parents. Nobody threw me down, tied me up, and put food down my throat. But there was an upbringing. There were experiences. There were life circumstances, real or imagined. But I picked up the idea that I could only rely and trust myself. You know, I was at a meeting a, a long time ago, and what the guy said to me I thought was so profound that I literally followed him out of the meeting, and I asked him to say it again so that I could write it down word for word. I've actually heard it said on a Vision for You meeting, or it might have been a special edition, I can't remember, but uh, it says here, most of us don't take the time to closely examine our lives or our manner of living. We make basic assumptions early in life and go from there, rarely questioning if they need to be changed and if they were effective to begin with, right? So was my self-reliance effective to begin with? Well, um, let's see what it says about reliance here. When it's talking about our inventory, we reviewed our fears thoroughly. We put them on paper, even though we had no resentment in connection with them. We asked ourselves why we had them. Wasn't it because self-reliance failed us? Self-reliance was good as far as it went, but it didn't go far enough. Some of us once had great self-confidence, but it didn't. We didn't fully solve the fear problem, or any other. And when it made it, when it made us cocky, it made us worse. And that was certainly my case. I'll give you another example uh, of security for me. Another response for me, for my security, was to control. In order to feel safe, in order to thrive, in order to live, I had to control everything and everyone around me to feel secure, right? And that's what I had to control. And trust me, a lot of people didn't like me controlling them, but I felt that that's what I had to do. And it definitely had me stepping on the toes of others. And frankly, I stepped on my own toes and fell on my face as far as being able to control the world. I mean, how insane is that? But that's the self-delusion that not only I can only rely on myself, but that I need to control everyone around me. 
You know, and finally, call it the gift of desperation, uh, the instinct to survive, to actually live, overrode those instincts, those responses to those instincts where I finally surrendered to this program was literally the fear of dying. Uh, here's an example of my social instinct. And, and I think for many of us, those responses, sometimes we have our own spin to it. And one instinct may be stronger than the other, but I will tell you my social instinct created a lot of problems for me and a lot of fears. You know, I grew up as a foreign service brat. We moved every couple of years. I was, you know, pulled up in the middle of a school year, taken to another country, another culture, another language, and then plopped into the middle, you know, plopped into a school environment and asked to adapt. I did not do well. And to me, I felt in order to thrive, I had to fit in. And I think, you know, I basically turned myself inside out to be whatever I thought you needed me to be so that I could fit in. Hence, my entry into drugs and alcohol. You want an instant peer group, start drinking and drugging. I'm also a drug addict and alcoholic as well as a compulsive eater. And this, to me, was one of the biggest things behind my bulimia. Again, I bought the myth that the world sells you that thin as well, and I was willing to sacrifice myself internally and physically so that I could feel that I belonged because that instinct was so strong in me, and I didn't even know. And don't even get me started on the social instinct for love and my interpretation of what love was supposed to be. I mean, I can't even begin to tell you how many situations and fearful situations I put myself in because I thought love was conditional. I was never good enough. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, for example, eight years into recovery or 10 years, something like that. And I'm desperately wanting to get married. Why? Because I felt my misguided instinct was that if I was going to be married, that somehow I would have the love and the security and the comfort and the ease that I needed. I had this delusional view, this fantasy, harlequin romance view of what marriage was. And I thought that I just needed to be married. Well, guess what? When you're married, you have to have another person in that situation. And I valued more the marriage than the person. And um, in in a situation that I refused to listen to my recovery network about the person I was engaged to about three or four weeks, I don't know, it was a number of weeks, but I mean, the wedding was planned, the the, the venue was reserved, the wedding dress was bought, everything, um, but just actually doing the wedding. And I came home to find this uh, fiance beating my dog. And when I got in between the dog and the beating, I also was hit. And at that point, the fellowship came to the floor as well as others saying, Amy, 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 you know, uh, what's going on here? And I wound up leaving um, that person, realizing that this was not a right fit for me. Um, and that, to me, saved my life. But this is eight or nine years in recovery, people. We say twisted thinking does not vanish in a twinkling. And I can gratefully say now I'm married to the right person. I believe that God wanted me to be married to, and I've had children, and now I'm facing retirement and empty nests and all of these things. But this is where this is where the learning curve occurs. It's in recovery. We put the food down, we get recovered, and then we learn through these inventories and constant inventory and self-introspection of step 10, you know, what it is that's driving us and what are those fears, what are those fear-based decisions that I was still making in recovery. And God relieved me of the bondage of self. And then uh, another example for the, the, the sex instinct, and, and I 
enough of me. Let's let's let let's let Bill tell us a little bit about that one, right? To reproduce, to produce, let's about how to get to the top, how to succeed. Bill talks about it in his story on page um on page one, right? We just get to Bill's story here on page one. He talks about it very clear. I fancied myself a leader. I had a talent for leadership. I imagined that I would be at the head of vast enterprises, that I would manage with the utmost assurance. I proved to the world that I was important. And how did that work for Bill, that thrive for power, popularity, money, prestige? Well, further down on page two, one of my utmost favorite quotes in the big book, out of this alloy of drink and speculation, I commenced to forge a weapon that would one day turn in its flight and like a boomerang all but cut me to ribbons. This was so, I mean, the boomerang quote is so important because it really clarifies to me what mis, misguided or misdirected instincts fueled by fears that drove me to react in self-illusion, self-deluded, self-seeking, and selfish and destructive ways that just about destroyed me. Um, yeah, just about destroyed me. It's interesting when we talk about true powerlessness. Again, Leah mentioned it in the opening. Of course, there's the powerless over the food, but it's also my powerlessness as I began to understand in recovery over my beliefs, behaviors, and actions that were based on my fears, propelled by misguided instincts that threaded through and corroded my life. That's exactly what it did. So I made fear-based decisions. So let me just stop here and say to the newcomer, right, you may be thinking, whoa, this chica is like way out there. What does this have to do with my binging? Well, okay, so there's a saying in a way that the problem really isn't the food. The food was my answer to life, that the problem was me, me, myself, and I. And the doc op, it makes it very clear. Again, why do we eat? Because we're restless, irritable, discontent. And it's only when we get a sense of ease and comfort when taking a bite or a drink. Well, you just heard my life instruction manual, right? Trust no one, do it all yourself, control everything, be a human being, not a human doing. I'm sorry, be a human doing, not a human being. Do anything and everything to fit, fit in with the world. Love is conditional. And my sponsor in December of 87 said to me, finally, when I truly surrendered to this program, you know, my, my my accident date is December 7th, which is actually Pearl Harbor Day. And I always like to say that the ships were sunk and so was I when it came to this disease. And my sponsor, and I also have to say great gratitude to the slew of sponsors that I went through to get to the to get to 87, a bazillion of them who never watered down the program and said, when you're ready, you know, you're you're when you're ready, you're ready. Keep coming back and keep trying to work this program. Who never gave up on me? Who said, you know, don't walk out five minutes before the miracle. But you ne but they also never watered down the program and they said it's abstinence and the process of working the 12 steps that will give you the power you need to stop killing yourself. And my sponsor said to me, quote, how is that way? How is your way? Wait, I'm sorry. She said to me, quote, Amy, if your way is working so well, why are you here? Right? And, and it wasn't working. And, and, and I'll tell you why. Page 52 gives you a great description of my life. We call them the bedevilments. I know we've heard them before, but when you put them in the I statements, 
I think they're pretty powerful. So I'm just going to read them. I was having trouble with my personal relationships. I couldn't control my emotions. I was a prey to misery and depression. I couldn't make a living to me that be happy or successful. I had a feeling, constant feeling of uselessness, and I was full of fear. I was unhappy, and I couldn't be of rehelp to any people. That is definitely where I was at. And you wonder why I got restless, irritable, discontent. You wonder why I ate. The question was, <laughs> when wasn't I restless, irritable, discontent, living in that way, living in that manner, full of fear? Um, so the question is, when was I not primed and pumped to be having the food come and call, right? I don't know how many times I stood in front of the refrigerator, five bites into the binge, going, how did I get here? And not understanding what was going on with the mental obsession. This disease is so cunning and so baffling, and I'm so grateful for the power of these steps and these inventory that allowed me to access God and what I needed because, as you can tell, there was no way on God's green earth that I would have been able to fix myself. I mean, what would happen constantly? The instinct for ease and comfort would get hard because the way I was living my life was not working, to say the least. So I would seek that instinct for comfort, ease, escape, to anesthetize my feelings. It overrode every other instinct in a big way. You know, I think unconsciously I felt like feeling my feelings that were repercussions of my behavior were more fatal than the consequences of killing myself with binging and purging. Again, powerless. And in those moments, page 24 makes it very clear I could not bring with sufficient memory the torture of a prior binge because I needed that fix. It says it very clear, as always, in italics. Um, we are unable at certain times to bring into our consciousness into our consciousness with sufficient force, the memory and the suffering and humiliation of even a week or a month ago, or me an hour ago, we are without defense against the first bite. So let's be clear. I don't just eat because I created a bunch of problems in my life, right? That is, that's not just it, physical allergy, mental obsession. Without a shadow of a doubt, the only way for me to find freedom and constant sanity in my life today is to put the food down and to be abstinent from those foods entirely and then the embarking on the process of working the steps. I don't address my eating nor my fears along the way through the steps, eating, and hope that I graduate at step 12 and find myself abstinently recovered. That's not what the big book says. That's not the message that I understand to be. So, okay, so on to the solution. All right, y'all, I'm going to tell you how to fix all your problems. I'm going to fix it all right here, okay? Ready? <laughs> yeah, no, that's that's not the way it works. It's uh, not that black and white. And, Lord, I wish it was. I wish there was a magic fix. I wish there was a silver bullet. Uh, sometimes my fears and my recovery have been a moving target. But I am grateful for what I do have. And what I do have is I have a practical application via the 12 steps that allows me to connect to God, the power that I need, and that allows me to access and reveal, right? Uncover, discover, or discover, uncover, and discard 
I have found a way through the practical application of these steps to either remove these fears or at least, as I like to say, turn down the volume on their power to make me act in destructive ways. Sometimes I think these things, but gratefully now in recovery, I usually don't act out on them, these fear-based behaviors. But that's the deal for me. And sometimes the fears are removed and sometimes the volume is turned down. But, um, so you know I'm going to talk here about inventory. It's that's what I'm going to talk about here about inventory, um, just to give you some examples. Um, as the big book says, we come to our fears or to knowing what our fears are through our resentment inventory. And also we do a fear inventory in a separate in and of itself. Um, so I'll just give you a couple examples on what some of those fears are. And by the way, I... I don't know about you all, but when I first came to the program, I mean, sure, I knew basic fears, right? But, you know, I, I don't want to die, and I'm fear afraid of, of other things. But it's like I didn't understand, and, you know, I was told to go look up fears, like what, what fears that strike you? And it was fascinating because I didn't understand, like, character defects. Someone had me look up different character defects because I didn't, like, know some of them. Like, I didn't recognize them. And yet I had them in spades, if that makes any sense. So I'll give you a couple of my fears, my, my, my spin on my fears. Being deprived, being incapable, being worthless, being unloved, being useless. I'm afraid of the unknown, being vulnerable. I'm afraid of rejection. I'm afraid of pain. I'm afraid of old age. I'm afraid of meaninglessness. I'm afraid of loss of connection. I'm afraid of material loss. I can be afraid, or I should say, I can be afraid of limitation. Uh, I'm afraid of doing things wrong. I'm afraid of defeat, declining health. Big one for me, I'm afraid of abandonment. So I looked those up so I could actually really pinpoint the ones that work for me, work for me, that's, that's the wrong thing, that were a problem for me. Um, so let me give you some examples here from my, uh, here's one from a resentment list, okay? Um, I had a resentment toward my um, my sister and dealing with some issues in growing up that affected my security uh, and my self-esteem. And the question always is, what does this affect? And with that, what does it affect? What is the lie that is at play here? And what is the fear that is at play here? She would get tremendously angry at me when I did something wrong, and it affected all of these things. And this happens often too when I get when someone gets angry at me today. You know, it affects my security, my personal relations, my self-esteem, and 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 what was going on behind that. And um, for example, um, I got my sister would get mad at me when I would do things wrong. And I would nag her and nag her to, to show me the right way, and she wouldn't. And what that affected um, and what I, the lie that I was believing was that I would not be okay, that I would not be okay unless she showed me how to do it. That whole idea of control, I wanted um, her to show me so that I could be in control because if I wasn't in control, I wouldn't feel secure. I had an issue the other day where my uh, daughter, for example, she um, snapped at me because I was nagging her about her doctor appointments because she's having a fourth surgery on her hip, and it's very scary for her, and it's very scary for me. And I was trying to control that process. 
again, affected my security, my personal relations, my, my self-esteem. And what was at play here? Of course, is the fear is that if she's not okay, I'm not okay. You know, so what's the lie in believing that God doesn't have my back, that God has not carried me so far, that God does not love her, right? So those are the fears that I had to address in those inventory to realize what was going on. And I, you know, I'd like to say it's really black and white and it's really clear, but it isn't. And that's why I feel sometimes the 10 steps are so valuable. I feel the fourth step, we get to know ourselves into what our fears are. And the 10th step, we practice addressing and self-evaluating and self-introspection to find out what is the spring, what is the, the springboard, the fear that is causing the behavior. For me, it was the controlling behavior, the, the self-reliance, the nagging. Um, and that did not bring out a good circumstance, right? And so I had to pray about how would God want me to be and trusting that God um, loves her, loves me. Uh, here's another example on the fear inventory. Um, and if you go to page 68, it gives you the questions that you can break out into columns. I mean, there's a lot of inventories out there that you can do, but it's real simple. You break out. It says here, what is the fear? Okay, I'm afraid of being embarrassed. Why do I have this fear? Because of experience. I'm afraid of being alone. I must not be a likable person. I am unworthy. And how? what was my response? Where has self-reliance failed me? Well, I tried to control others. I tried to manipulate. I tried to whine and be passive aggressive. And that didn't work for me at all. So what would God have me be? It would be the opposite of those behaviors. And sometimes that's easier said than done, folks, on how we go about doing that. Um, so what are my solutions to those fears once I recognize them for what they are? Because, frankly, I am as powerless over my character defects and the fears underneath them as I was over the food. I don't remove my fears. My God does that for me. But I need to pray to God, Rhoda Shore, as they say. I need to do the footwork. And for me, that's the inventory work to understand what is going on behind the fears, what is going on behind the behavior. For me, the inventory comes down to basically two questions for me at the end, the fourth column, if you will, which is what is the underlying fear at play here and what is the lie that I'm believing, right? Because I'm believing a lie when I am so absorbed in fear, and usually that's related to some sort of belief. Remember the belief that I decided on way back when about whether or not and never questioning whether it was effective, whether it needed to be changed. And we need to change in this program. I need to change. My recovery is contingent on the maintenance of my spiritual condition. And one of my spiritual conditions is using the pool of inventory to stay clear about what is going on inside of me and what those drivers are. And making sure that those fear-based decisions, those evil and corroding threads, don't continue on through my life to cause destructive destructiveness. So most important, you know, what would God have me be? That's the question at the end. What would God have me be? What do I do? Because sometimes fears are easily re revealed to me, and then I can let them go by doing an inventory. Sometimes fears stay with me. So what do I do? Well, obviously, there's prayer. And sometimes I'm asking others to pray for me, to pray with me because I can't get see myself through. Sometimes it's getting out of myself. It's going to be of service to others. It's going out to take a walk, that saying, move a muscle, change a thought. I need to get out of myself to help others to get away from that fear sometimes. 
A lot of those prayers are in the big book, the third sex prayer, relieve me of the bondage of self. Um, that to me was the prayer that I say quite frequently, relieve me of the bondage of self that is causing me to be so afraid where I think I need to rely on myself again. And that fails me every time. I also got, um, I was talking to some friends about how they deal with fear in preparation for this talk. I wanted to know what they, you know, what they thought. And someone gave me this great, I'm going to plagiarize. This is what I love about program. We can plagiarize each other like crazy. And what they did is they took a number of quotes about fear out of the big book and then basically lined them up like a mantra or a prayer in and of itself. And so this is how it came out. We live on a basis of trusting God rather than ourselves in all areas of our lives. We pray to God to remove our fears. We pray to God to let him demonstrate through us what he can do. We trust God and not our finite selves. We ask God to match calamity with serenity, and we pray for knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry it out. I love that. And if uh, you, anyone wants that, you can ask me for it later. But I think the beauty of this is what I've heard often in the program is to not limit how big your God is when it comes to our fears. You know, first I reveal them, I recognize them through inventory. I see how powerless I am. I see what the evil and corroding threat is. And then I ask for God to remove them, humbly to remove them. And a lot of times I have to act as if. A lot of times people say fear is the, faith is the absence of fear. And I don't think that they're necessary mutually exclusive. I can be fearful and still have faith. The question is whether I'm going to take action to go down that black hole of fear or am I going to choose to take the action steps that will turn down the volume on that fear, if not remove it entirely. And that for me is going straight to God. And sometimes that's straight to God via prayer. Sometimes that's my God squad, God with skin on, you all, the fellowship. Um, but I would say one of the most valuable um, aspects for me is this idea of trust. I have known through experience for decades now in the program, one day at a time, of course, where God has done for me in my fears what I could not have done for myself. I mean, life happens, people. <laughs> life happens. And I've had circumstances and things that have terrified me and scared me, a lot of health issues, a lot of other fears. I mean, you just can't not live and run into things in life that are going to cause tremendous fear. And I can look back and I can see where God had carried me when I turned to him. I might have been angry at first, but God's big enough to handle that too. But I turned to God to help relieve me and to help me stop obsessing about those fears and responding in destructive ways to those fears. Um, and, you know, if you're a newcomer and you don't have those experiences yet, you're welcome to borrow mine. But I will tell you one experience that we all have, either newcomer or not, is the experience of doing it my way that doesn't work. There is a power out there that was God, should you choose to call him God, that will relieve us of that. And I have to choose to have the faith and take the action steps to do that, uh, even when I have fears. Um, just a final quote here to wrap things up. Um, sometimes I have to decide, will it be my dreams, my agenda, my decisions for happiness, myself, my will, for happiness, what I define as happiness, or trust in God's plans for me.
because when I trust in God's plans for me, I work through those fears and I get to the other side. When I have my agenda, my dreams, my decisions, my actions, that I get into trouble. I used to think that the worst thing I could be would be a compulsive eater or a drug addict or an alcoholic, and it turns out it was really the best thing that ever happened to me because now I have the life that I do in this program should I choose to work it. And I'll just wrap things up by saying I'm going to trust infinite God instead of infinite me. And page 68 says it the best where it says, perhaps there is a better way. We think so. For we are now on a different basis, the basis of trusting God and relying upon God. We trust infinite God rather than our finite self. We are in the world to play the role he assigns just to that extent that we do as we think he would have us and humbly rely on him does he enable us to match calamity, 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 calamity with serenity. And that's enough out of me. Thanks for letting me share and I'll pass. Hey, Amy, beautiful presentation this morning. Thank you for your clear and thorough presentation on the topic of fear. You truly brought it to life in Technicolor, a great gem for the archives. Much appreciated. Today's share ID, 20,235. That's 20235. Amy's contact information will be given at the conclusion of this recording, so please stay tuned for that. We will now transition to a question and answer segment. You can pose a question to Amy by pressing star 1. I need your name, including the first letter of your last name. Lisa B. Lisa B. Loretta H. Gotcha, Loretta. Jason K. Jason, good morning. Jody Sonia S. from Philadelphia. Who's from Philly? Sonia S. Sonia S. And I had Jody prior to that. Anyone else? Star one to unmute if you'd like to ask a question. Okay, let's start with this group. Beginning with Lisa B, followed by Loretta H. Go ahead, Lisa. Hi, Amy. Thank you so much for your share. This is Lisa B um, in Massachusetts. My question for you is, um, so you mentioned a couple times that society mentions that thin is well. And I also have in my history that in my brain something soldered in middle school that if you're thin, people like you. I've been in, um, in recovery. I've been in, in program for a long time, and I've been absent for a while. But sometimes those thoughts still Society seems very strong sometimes, those thoughts. Do you still have those thoughts? And if you do, how do you counteract them? Thank you. Thanks, Lisa. Great question. Yeah, that's that's one of the reasons why I say, you know, the, the turning down the volume on those fears once we recognize them or turning the volume down on those beliefs, if you will. And I definitely have 
run up against um, not only thin as well, but that, you know, as you get older and you age, that you become invisible because you don't have those looks anymore. You don't have, and even if you are thin, and I absolutely recognize where you're coming from here when those thoughts, when those thoughts erupt, <laughs> basically. And what usually happens is that it's almost like I visualize the, the sentence coming across my forehead going thin as well. And I think, wait a minute, that's an old one right in my head like i process it I, I i tell on myself and i do what they call talk program to myself instead of listening to the belief the old belief that's going on in my head i don't go down i don't fertilize that thought if you will i let it go across my forehead or in one ear and out the other and i recognize it for what it is which is an old belief and i talk to myself and i say you know this is an old belief God, relieve me of the bondage itself. I am, and then I also have a mantra. I'm a beautiful woman inside and out and worthy of recovery. So I replace those thoughts. And it's a pattern that has just been a practice for me over and over again of recognizing what the false belief is and the fear that because I'm older or that I'm not as thin as I think I should be or the numbers on the scale that somehow that defines me. And I have to repeat those things to myself. This number does not define me. Being thin does not define who I am. I am a child of God. Um, I have worth that goes beyond this. So if that makes sense, I'm trying to be able to talk myself, to talk program to myself instead of listening to that old belief. And I think I don't panic as well anymore. Um, I've learned to not panic. That's why I'm recovered, not cured. That's why, that to me, it shows me that those thoughts will still crop up. And if they continue to crop up, for example, things like thin as well and other old beliefs, then that means I may need to do more than just talking to myself and praying to God. Maybe I need to do a quick inventory. Maybe I need to pick up the phone and talk to one of my God squad and say, this is what's going on. Talk program to me, would you? You know, those kinds of things to help me relieve it. Or maybe I'll need more in-depth inventory if it's creating a lot of anxiety. So, but usually when I feel this thin as well, for example, I tried, I just go ahead and talk myself through the beliefs because I recognize it now for what it is. It's a lie. And I hope that helps. Thank you, Lisa B. Loretta H., your turn, followed by Jason K. Thank you, Leah, and thank you, Amy G., for embracing this program like your hair is on fire. And that's my question to you. I, you know, since I've known you, you have embraced this program. And I think as a recovered person, we've all become trust fund recipients. But how do you keep that trust fund alive in your daily activities in the steps? So what is the spiritual toolkit and spiritual a message that you carry on your heart. Thank you. I hope that makes sense. Hey, yeah, yeah. Hey, Loretta, thank you. Great question. Um, let me just say that, you know, my instinct to not die before coming to program, one of the reasons why I embrace this program is because my, my instinct is now telling me by, that by embracing this program, I live. And I not only live, but I thrive by the grace of God in these 12 steps. So, so I now embrace this way of life, these principles, these steps. So that's how I'm going to live. 
and yes, my hair is on fire, but now, you know, a few 24 hours later, it's not so much being on fire as it is about embracing what it is this program offers me on a daily basis on how I deal with my life and circumstances of life, not only myself, but my circumstances of life. And I think one of the biggest fears and problems that we have in long-term recovery, for example, is this idea of complacency. I'm not kidding when I said that our recovery is contingent on the maintenance of a, spirit, of a spiritual condition. It really is a one-day-at-a-time program. You know, I get up in the morning. I'm, I'm an unrecovered Amy. I'm dealing with Amy, right? So I get on my knees. I roll off on my bed. I don't stand up. I get on my knees. It's a sign of surrender, accountability, and humility to my higher power to say, God, relieve me of the insanity and show me what you would have me be today. Relieve me of the bondage of self. So those are behaviors and habits and routines and disciplines that have become a part of my everyday life of accountability, of humility, of prayer, of step work um, that allow me to embrace this program and live via these principles and these steps. So again, I'm, I wake up in the morning, I'm, I'm on my knees, I'm asking for surrender, I'm, I'm humble, accountable, and then I have a sponsor, I have sponsees, I work this program, I do my step work every single day, I do my inventory as needed with my 10 steps, I do my 11th step at night. It's like breathing to me. I work my abstinent food plan, I prepare food. I live life within certain boundaries because there's things that I don't eat, obviously, but in, within those boundaries, I live a very full life. And I embrace this program because it has given me so much. By the footwork that we do, sometimes it's really hard work. Sometimes that inventory work is hard. Sometimes I can't believe that I'm this far, for example, in recovery, and I still do some of the same stupid things, responding to fears. But you know what? Now I have the instruction manual. Like, I don't know about you all, but when you were kids walking around, I used to walk around going, like, why does everyone else seem to have the instruction manual to life? And I don't have it. I mean, I was so uncomfortable living in my own skin. I didn't know what to do. And again, created my own beliefs, my own system, and that didn't serve me well. And it almost killed me. So now I embrace this habit, this routine of this program, and it has served me well one day at a time. I hope that helps. Sorry, I get very emotional about that, and I hope it made sense. Thank you, Loretta. And we have Jason Kay, followed by Jody. Good morning. Thank you so much, Amy. I really, really get a lot out of your, your talk. Um, this is more like an uh, expand upon or elaborate upon type of question. I hear people say an in inventory, uh, did, did self-reliance work? No. Um, and, and then I'll ask them, tell me more about that. And, and in your example of the inventory, you kind of answered these questions a little bit more specifically. Um, what's the value, I guess, in really looking at, to, looking at how self-reliance didn't work for us and, and, and naming those things really fully and, and, and elaborating on those in our inventory? So, Jason, so the question is, why are we elaborating or what comes from the elaborating? I'm sorry, could you clarify? I guess it would, uh, the question would be, can you elaborate upon um, your practice? Do you elaborate on, you know, I'll hear people do an inventory to tell for reliance work, no. And, and I'll ask them, well, how? Elaborate on it. When you gave your example, during your talk, you kind of elaborated on or named specifically how that didn't work. 
is that like a common practice for you? Do you encourage others to do that? Um, you know, I've gotten a ton of value in that. I think that's an important point. So I'm hoping you could elaborate on that. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I you know, when I'm working with, um, Great. I think it is. It's so important because the goal is, is to list these columns, but to get to the fourth column. You know, where was I selfish, dishonest, self-seeking, afraid? I can't change the circumstances of the past. I can't change the other person. The only thing I can do is work on me and what's going on inside of me that creates this anger, this fear, this resentment, right? You know, so I'm always asking them when we get to that to that point, I'm asking them why. You know, why are we feeling this way? What is the lie that I am believing? What is the old belief? What is it that's propelling you to act in the way? And, 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 oh, by the way, what did you do, right? What did that create in you? It created fear. It created passive-aggressive behavior. It created manipulation. Why did you feel that way? For me, it's a question of drilling down on the why. Like, I just keep asking why of the sponsee. Why, why do you think that is? What is the lie that you're believing? Why is that fear prevalent? And usually by the time we get through that, we get down to some of those core fears and those core conditions that say this is why the behavior occurred because this is the only thing that the, the inventory does. It reveals ourselves. It doesn't fix the other person and it doesn't change the circumstance. So, yes, it's incredibly important and it's important that we help the sponsee able to drill down to what's going on at the bottom, at the base, if you will, at the core. Um, I hope that helps. Thank you, Jason. Jody, your turn. Pose a question. Thank you, you, Leah. This is Jody E., gratefully recovered in California. Thank you, Amy, so much for a beautiful share about fear, one of my favorite topics. My question is twofold. As a recovered bulimic, do you tend to sponsor more bulimics than others and whether or not that's true when you sponsor a bulimic is are there unique uh, do you find it necessary to bring something unique to the bulimics you sponsor as opposed to a regular compulsive overeater Yeah, great question. Um, I think that, I mean, no, I don't, I'm not particular as far as who I sponsor, but if they are a bulimic, I, I certainly feel like I do have experience because I am one. <laughs> so, um, and because of that, I will drill down on the specifics of the bulimic spin of compulsive eating. You betcha. So I would be remiss in not doing that. But I am not partial to, I don't, I think that a, you know, the 12 steps are the 12 steps. The power greater than yourself, however you define it, is a power greater than yourself. I don't think that um, I have to just be sponsoring bulimics or that a bulimic should be sponsored by a bulimic. Uh, I can't say it doesn't hurt. I think it certainly helps. But I think that someone who is sponsored by a recovered person is what's needed. If they are, if the sponsor is recovered, it doesn't matter what the, the, to me, it doesn't matter what your manifestation is. It's bulimic, anorexic. There is some particular spin, of course, to those behaviors. 
And if there's something, for example, um, that I don't understand, we don't sponsor in a vacuum. So if you, for example, are not bulimic and let's just say you sponsor someone who is, if there's something that I don't know or understand, I have no problem with saying, you know, hold on, let me go talk to some other bulimics and see what they have to say about it, or I will send them to other bulimics. I will ask them to have part of their network be other bulimics or other anorexics so that they can support each other or we can support each other. So I hope that makes sense. Yes, thank you so much. Thank you, Jody. Sonia S., your turn. Hi, this is Sonia S., Grateful Recovering Compulsive Overeater, and thank you so much for your service this morning, and you mentioned that um, you had some health scares, and uh, you also mentioned the passage in the big book where it discusses being able to meet calamity with serenity, and I was wondering if you could elaborate on that a little bit and how God has provided like peace and comfort during difficult times. Thanks. Sure. Got another hour? <laughs> I'd be happy. Um, I just, uh, for example, when I was talking about having people, uh, pray for me when I could not pray for myself, I, I, I've done a lot of injury through my, uh, compulsive exercising and my anorexic phase. And, um, I believe that did a quite a substantial amount of damage. And, uh, I did, I also ride horses and have a tendency sometimes to fall off of them and break some bones. Anyway, it's, I've had some injuries and health issues, and uh, at one point I, I, uh, I injured my back, and um, I don't know if it was one particular incident or it was wear and tear over time, but I wound up within a week flat on my back and excruciating pain um, going down my leg, like molten lava going down my leg, and I thought I wasn't going to be able to, didn't know if I would walk again. It was awful. And I struggled tremendously with the fear of what my life was going to be like and whether I would ever be relieved of not just chronic, but just constant, constant pain. And um, I had to reach out to my fellowship and ask them to please pray for me because I could not pray for myself. I was so terrified. And you know, I'll be honest with you, it was very difficult and I cannot begin to tell you the peace that I felt when others could pray with me, and it brought me peace. And that's where I felt God. I felt God there for me at that time. And in those moments, I felt, you know, like the footprints prayer where, you know, you only see one set of footprints and you realize that God was carrying you. I've had circumstances like that where I've had to constantly reach out to others to talk God to me, and I have found that to be such a invaluable experience and so they would pray for me and then I would find peace for an hour or two and if I'd start to get anxious again I would then pray I'd had mantras of prayers that I repeated and then if I couldn't see myself through I would pick up the phone and I would call and I would ask others to help relieve me of that bondage of that fear and to help me trust you know that has been invaluable and then that, since that back injury uh, you know I am up I am moving I did wind up having surgery I've had some other surgeries uh, that did one that did not go well, a knee replacement that did not go well, and that was a terrifying experience. But then again, it wasn't as terrifying because I could look back and I thought, 
you know, God got me through that experience, and here I am today with another experience. It's just life. I have to accept those circumstances, and I need to get, you know, I was unhappy with the result of the, and the, and the ensuing pain that had to be fixed in this knee replacement issue. And yet I could look back on that and I could say, God relieved me and got me through that. Well, then my fear, you know, is nothing against God because I'm going to get through this with God's help. And sure enough, you know, I'm, I'm okay now. So those are the kinds of fears. I, I have other fears of dealing with my, my sister's health issues. Uh, she has MS. And I really struggled with the fear of what her life is going to be like as she continues to age. And I'm constantly... Those are active fears that crop up, and I'm constantly, I literally have a God box where I put all my fears. I write them down on paper. I'm very visual and uh, tactile, and so I write those fears down, and I stick them in my God box. And sometimes when I have other fears about different other, other things, like financial insecurity, um, then I go out and I will take a walk. And I will really, you know, just to change my, 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 where I'm, where I'm at. Um, and I love my God box too. I have to say I've had a couple of them over years. And what's really beautiful about that is to go back to it later and look through it and see all of the things that God has carried me through uh, when it comes to those fears. So I hope that gives you some examples and I hope it helps. Thank you, Sonia. We have time for a couple more questions. If you have a question for Amy, press star one to unmute. I need your name, including the first letter of your last name. My name is Karen. I hear you, Pete, and then Karen. Annette. Annette, we'll see what our timing is. Okay, go Uh ahead, Pete. Thank you, Leah, for your service. And Amy, thank you so much for your presentation. It had depth and weight and really meant a lot. So thank you for that. You mentioned that you wake up unrecovered. And our book talks about we have a disease that only a spiritual experience can conquer. Can you help me understand what you mean by you wake up unrecovered? Yeah, no, I appreciate you say, I appreciate you bringing that up, Pete. I, I need to be clear about that. You know, it's a kind of saying that gets thrown around the rooms because it's, quote, a one-day-at-a-time program. But I have been relieved of the insanity of the compulsive eating. The program and God have 12 steps have done that for me. What I'm saying is that I'm not relieved of my self-centeredness is probably what I should have said. You know, I roll out of bed and fears can hit me immediately if I'm worried about something, right? Or, I, can, you know, what I do is I then, in, in accountability and, and turning my will and my life over, I roll over and I say, relieve me of the bondage itself. So I guess what I'm saying is that I'm recovered, but I'm not cured. So I'm addressing the not cured part when I roll over and get on my knees. So I appreciate you bringing that up because it really is that gets thrown around in the rooms. And I think that that can get confusing to people because um, I have been relieved of the bondage of compulsive eating and I have a new way of living my life now. I'm not perfect. I don't do it perfectly, but I certainly um, am recovered, not cured. So I hope that helps clarify. It does. Thank you. Thank you, PB. Karen, your turn. I need your initial of your last name, please. K. 
Karen Star One Tanya. Oh, I'm I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I was I was tuning in when when you asked and and I didn't hear anything. Okay, my last name is uh, starts with a P. Karen P. Please go ahead with your question. Thank uh, you. Thank you so much. Thank you for the meetings and thank you so much, Amy, for um, all of the wonderful talk. Um, my question is, uh, let me see if I can find it. Um, you, you, I believe I heard you speak of um, sobriety or abstinence not being contingent on circumstances. And my question is, if I am not uh, yet abstinent, and and if one finds themselves in a situation of wanting to get abstinent, and their life circumstances are uh, very challenging and not supportive of uh, self-care, but difficult to change also, quite, quite a major life decision to change the circumstances. Um, what would you suggest? So are we talking about a a, a, a sponsee or or something like that that um no, that I'm you're working no. with? Nope, I'm talking about okay. myself. I yep, I own this property and business. I've owned it for 20 years, and it is uh, it is very challenging for me. Okay. And, well, I mean, I can. Uh-huh. Well, I guess what I'm saying is, I I I thought you meant. Sorry, I misunderstood there at the beginning. Um, can tell you is that there's a quote in the big book that says, you know, wife or no wife, job or no job. I mean, we have to deal with life on life's terms. There's there's no doubt about it. And life can be, quote, very lifey at times, very difficult. But what I have found is that my recovery and what I do for my recovery on a daily basis is my anchor in that tsunami when life hits like that. And I know that if I don't have my recovery and my abstinence first, then I'm not going to be much less not, I I can't handle those situations, much less handle them well. And so, yes, we all come into recovery at different phases of our life and different circumstances and in the middle of crisis, one crisis or another. So what we do is we, we get our recovery first. I mean, that has to be a priority while we're working through those situations. I'm not sure it's really that black and white, but I know that for me, if I can't myself first and get going on my recovery with a sponsor, working with with an abstinent food plan, with working the steps, then I can't serve myself nor make appropriate decisions. I'm not saying we don't make those decisions that need to be made, but we have to put ourselves first and get that recovery going. I mean, I was told to make no major decisions within the first six months of the year of my recovery because I needed to focus on my recovery. Uh, I was single then. I was actually told not to date anyone, to not get involved with anyone, you know, and I was blessed to have that option at that time so that all it did was uh, work, and I went to meetings, and I learned what it was to be in recovery. For those of us who don't have that option, right, where we have marriage and family and circumstances and properties and things like that that you're talking about, I, there's still, there's still the program has got to come first because I, I have to know and get clear-headed before making those decisions. And the only way to do that for me is to admit powerlessness and work this program like my hair is on fire. I wish there was an easy answer to tell you on this one, but I will say that without being 
without working a working recovery program, I wouldn't have a chance in hell of making those appropriate decisions or dealing with that stress. It would only get worse because that's what the disease guarantees us. It will continue to guarantee us more problems. So I, I hope that helps. But I would say do the basics, get a program, get abstinent, start working the steps, and trust that God will take care of these situations as they need to while you're working your recovery program if you honor that program, that part of your life first. Thank you so much. Thank you, Karen P., for the question. Annette, star one to unmute to pose your question. Okay, Okay. am I unmuted? You are. Okay, so the question, and thank you, Amy. It was an amazing insight to fear because that's what I'm facing right now. Um, When you write and put your fear in the God box, is it more about just your fear or your hopeful outcome or being relieved of it? That's it. I'm sorry. Can you repeat that question, please? When you write when you your put it fear in the God box. and you put it in the God box, is it just the fear or do you add the hopeful outcome, like to be relieved of it? Or in other words, what yeah. do you add? You say now? Yeah. Um, I ask to be relieved of that fear. Good point. Okay. Actually, you know, I've never thought of I've never thought of putting in there like like saying, well, this is what I want instead. I just want to be relieved of the fear, and I just trust that God will do it as God sees fit. I don't like to think I dictate to God. I mean, God knows what I really want to have happen. You know what I mean? Like, I want to be relieved right. of the pain, right? So that's yeah. But uh, yeah, but no, I've I've never thought of it in 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 that way. But uh, no, I just write down to peace please be relieved of my fear of whatever it is that I'm afraid that's going to happen. And and by the way, I also with the God box, I put in a lot of prayers there too, you know, prayers for hopes for my children and prayers for, you know, other things as well. But there's a heck of a lot of relieve me of the fear of in that God box to say, to say the okay. least. Perfect. Thank you. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I kind of guessed it, but I needed to hear you say it. So, yeah, Thank you. I get it. I get it. Yep. Thank you, Annette. Okay, perhaps we can squeeze in one more question. Anybody else with a question? Star one to unmute. Going once. Pedro. Pedro, go ahead with your question. Yeah, yeah. Thank you very much, Amy and, and Leah and everybody else. Um my question is you at the beginning you you said how to work this program in a in a happy way. Uh can you uh elaborate a little bit on that? You mean when I was giving the definition of of abstinence about and doing so happily, is that what you meant? Yeah, you said, you know, you uh you know Working this program in a happy way, yeah. Okay. Well, like we said, like I said earlier, I mean, my life was so. I mean, great question. I mean, doing so happily, I guess, is sort of a way of saying that I am so grateful. I, I should, probably should have said doing so gratefully. I mean, uh, this 
program has given me so much. You know, these 12 steps, my connection to God, have given me a new way of living my life that uh, I am happily embracing uh, this program. Do I happily embrace all my fears? Am I always happy about having those fears? No, I'm only human here. You know, I'm 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 just a regular bozo on the bus like everybody else here. But I do say that I have been given a way of living my life that happily I embrace because those principles, the way of living through these steps, through my connection to God, have brought me happiness, have brought me contentment, have brought me serenity, have offered me a way um, to match serenity with match calamity with serenity not perfectly of course you know sometimes i'm kicking and screaming about certain things i'll be honest with you right but i still am incredibly grateful and happy to use the tools that have been that have been i feel i've been blessed to be given that's why i say i'm a grateful recovering compulsive overeater because if it wasn't for fearing of physical death of compulsive eating i would have never done all this but in doing so, I have been given the keys to the kingdom as far as how, you know, I was talking earlier about that instruction manual to life. My instruction manual was killing me, right? So now I embrace this instruction manual, this way of living. May not always be happy about it, but I'm sure as hell happy to have it. I'm happy to use it. I'm happy to do it. It's my choice whether I'm going to pick up that kit of spiritual tools laid at my feet, right? That's my choice. And when I do so, um, I, I'm happy and I'm grateful. I hope that helps. Thank you, Pedro, for the question. Thanks to all who posed questions this morning. And, of course, thank you so much, Amy, for such a beautiful presentation, inspiring presentation this morning. The sheer ID for today, 20,235. That's two zero. Two, three, five, and we're going to close now from page 164 in a chapter entitled A Vision for You. Our book is meant to be suggestive only we realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously, you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right, and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you. Until then. <laughs>